0: Welcome to Toad on Games Podcast. Today we have with us our first ever BAFTA-nominated guest, and probably the only one we'll ever have, to be honest. Um, it's Grant Kirkhope.
1: Hello! Du, 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 du.
0: <laughs> I like that you gave yourself a little music intro. You're like, I'm a musician, I need to give myself a little a little music bit.
1: Yeah, I think it's obligatory, you just get used to writing little, little you know, kind of win, <laughs> little wind fanfares, it just accompanies your life now. Just gonna, yeah. It just goes on forever. So yeah, I, I have to do it, it's obligatory.
0: <laughs> um, I'm sure Grant needs no uh, introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. So he worked with Rare for many years, composed many video games that you would have loved. Banjo-Kazooie, Donkey Kong 64, Viva Pinata, moved on to do ukulele, Mario and Rabbids. Stellar stuff, I would say, and oh. hopefully everyone else would agree. Um, I think you have a very sort of unique sound to your soundtracks as well, because when I first saw and Rabbids announced, I was like, is that... Is that Grant Coco music? Like I actually clocked it. Wow. Before, before, and I was like, "Yeah, I think that's Coco. That was."
1: Yeah, I guess. Like you know, I think all composers like to think they've got their own signature sound. Yeah. You can pick it out. Um, I I guess I'm not convinced I've got one. (laughs) I mean, if I have, it's by complete accident. Um, it's a bit like you know when you hear like Brian May play the guitar from Queen, you always know it's him just because of the way. or Eddie Van Halen. Like I can tell there because I'm a guitar player, right? I can tell them without even knowing they're on the track it's just because they've got like a way this the way they pick certain notes or certain chords and stuff and I guess for me I suppose it's probably because I use the same old chords over and over again (laughs) (laughs) nothing's changed in the last 22 years and it's just people have got so used to it it's like oh god that's him again you know so it's nice to think I've got a bit of a recognizable thing um but you know it's probably by accident really I don't think I'm i'm not i don't think i'm really a kind of intelligent composer i'm not i'm not like that really i'm a bit of a mess of, i'm a bit of a mess around until it gets right sort of thing you know so yeah lucky really
0: <laughs> i think if people had to name like a few composers you're one of the names that would come up you're going to say otherwise but i think if, if people had to name like three or four composers i think you're one of the ones that they'd come up with
1: you know i sort of don't like to think that sometimes because i think that i hate all that ego nonsense i don't you know i don't like it and i'll try to be the kind of just a bloke that writes tunes now now and then you know (laughs) so it's very flattering that if people think that and obviously it's it's hugely humbling and i mean it's it's so nice for people to think that but um you know i don't know that stuff just gets me a bit like flustered (laughs) that's a word i can't think of what the word is but you know what i mean that kind of thing
0: yeah well that's because you want to remain humble and also i suppose that puts a fair amount of pressure on if if people like oh yeah grant coco we know him he's working on this it's safe.
1: Yes, yeah, it's just expected that you write great stuff, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm i sure I don't write great stuff all the time, I'm positive, I'm sure I don't, you know, it's just you just do your best, don't you, so um, it's gone all right so far, but you know, tomorrow's tomorrow, it could be dreadful tomorrow. I think that, as a composer, you never know how it's going to go until it's really out there, so you write your stuff, and then you might be waiting a couple of years to get it out the door before somebody hears it, and then you have to, you know, cross your fingers, not people like it, because I think you know, audiences can be really fickle. They can like you one minute and not like you the next. And I've seen lots of great composers be, you know, complete flavour of the month and then gone the next day, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm, I never for, for one minute take it for granted. So I always try super hard to, be, to write my best stuff. But I guess it might just be crap that day and that's it. You know, what do you do? You do your best, don't you?
0: Yeah. Is there, is there anything in particular that you don't like of yourself then? Do you listen back to some of your own music and go, ah?
1: Uh, you know, I think that I'm only ever really sort of 75% happy with what I do.
0: That's creative people in general, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think
1: you're right. I think, when well, I listen to John Williams, I kind of go, oh, my God, he's so brilliant. Like, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know about composing. And so, because he's my idol, I listen to his stuff all the time and just, you know, just sit there and just, like, quake in his greatness <laughs> and how I, can't, I just, how I just can't write stuff like that. And I try super hard to get to that standard, but, you know, I never, I'm never going to get there, you know. Um, so it's just, you know, I, I, I sort of call it like that curse of aspiration that you always aspire to be something better. Hmm. No matter what you do, um, you always want to be better than you were the last time. So, you know, it, it's a it can be a, a hard cross to bear that sometimes. My wife's constantly going, "Oh, you're so miserable all the time because you're just moaning about your music all the time." You know, she gets pissed off with it. And kids are like, "God, Dad, you're just so miserable," you know. Um, and so, I guess that's that is that curse. Like, if you you never seem to be happy, you never seem to get to that point where you think you can kind of go, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm quite good, at me." You know, I never get to that point. So, yeah. I'm always thinking. I could have done better there. I could have done better with that bit. That theme's not great, you know. You never, you know. So I think that, like you say, I think most creative people do end up thinking that the crap most of the time. Yeah, you know. I'm sure
0: even John Williams listens to his own work and goes, ah, that bit was crap. I'm sure he well, does the exact same thing.
1: Well, probably, but I mean, you know, I just obviously I can't imagine that, but I, get, I bet he does. Um, you know, so it's one of those things, isn't it? It's one of those curses you just can't get rid of.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so as far as I. I'm aware your first composition for when you started Rare was like 1996, was 95. Killer Instinct, or at least you performed on it. I'm not sure yeah. if you composed, but... Yeah,
1: yeah, so like when I first got there, it was like October 95, so my first sort of jobs were, I played a bit of guitar and uh, trumpet on KI2. Because Robin Beanland's a good friend of mine for years before we worked at Ray. We both played in rock bands in Yorkshire. So I knew, I knew him for very well. So I did that first. But at the same time, I was doing, I was converting Dave Wise's music from uh, Diddy Kong's uh, Diddy Quest at Donkey Kong Country 2 to work on the Game Boy. So that was my very first task. Do the guitar and trumpet on Killer and uh, convert Dave Wise's tunes to work on the Game Boy. That was my first thing.
0: Okay. Uh, so how did you get in with Ray in the first place? Did you... Apply or?
1: Yeah, no, no, I applied. So, like, as I said before, me and Robin Beanland used to play in rock bands in North Yorkshire, where we lived. He lived in Leeds, I guess that's West Yorkshire, is it? Well, anyway, and I lived in Harriet and So, I mean, we knew each other through bands for years, and so we ended up playing a band together. And then um he's a cute player. One day, like he, he announced that he'd got a job. I was like, what? Like, no one I knew got a job. We all just played in bands and sound on the dole, you know, most of the time. That was what we did. And I've I'd been I'd be doing that for nearly 11 years, like from leaving university till, till 33. That's all I've done, really uh so um and then he said oh, yeah i've got a job at rare i'm writing music video games i was like what i didn't people do that you know i didn't even know that was a thing you know um and i played a ton of video games at the time i just never thought about it um he said yeah i'm off so if, off you went and so at that point i was like you know i still do my kind of playing in pub rock bands i put i put some bigger bands too that did all right you know um but i was kind of on my pub rock phase <laughs> you know right. yeah, uh, in playing in like dreadful stuff uh like so and he said to me you know Grant, you've been on unemployment benefit for, like, I don't know how long, nearly 11 years. Don't you think it's time you, you maybe got a job? And I was like, what, a job? I mean, what's that, <laughs> you know? He said, well, why don't you try to do what I'm doing? So I was like, oof, you know, I I I failed, co- like, composing at, at university miserably. I was bad. I only just scraped the pass in the last year. Um, And just thought, God, what's it, my, you know, it was never once in my head to compose ever. He said, look, you know, he said, recommended some gear that I bought. So I bought like a synth and a copy of Cubase and bits and pieces. And I started to write tunes that I thought would be like right for video games. You know, thinking I played a lot of games at the time. Thought, you know, maybe I could, uh, maybe I can pull it out of the hat. Who knows? So I sent Rare like, five cassette tapes over the course of that year. It must have been like 94 to 95. Uh, I never got a reply. And then out the blue, after the last cassette I sent, it got a letter saying, please come for an interview. I was like, I couldn't believe it. So I went down on the Friday uh, and uh, got a letter on the and Dave Wise and Simon Farmer the general manager interviewed me and I got a letter on the Monday morning saying he got the job I couldn't believe it like I was like oh my god I'm going to have to <laughs> move like my mum's house I've been in mum's house forever never, never I've always been at home you know uh, and uh, moved down to to, uh, to live in Colville and work in Twy Cross at Rare it was you know I was as surprised as anybody else I couldn't believe it so it's complete fluke really that I got the job I was, it's all Robin's fault really I just blame him for it <laughs> <laughs>
0: So you must have been quite scared then to be doing your first game there.
1: Oh yeah, I, mean, I, I just had no idea what it entailed, right? I just had—I was sat at home writing MIDI files and stuff like that, you know. And I got mm. there, and Dave Wise came to see me and said, "You know, you're doing the Game Boy for I thought, "Oh my God, you know, for, for my first game." And he showed me it really quickly, and it was all in hex, so like no MIDI files, all a bit like it's a computer program, you know. You're writing in numbers on a black screen, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I was like, "I've never done it before in my life. I've got a club to do it. I'm going to fail miserably, you know." And I really thought I was going to have to quit. I said to Robin, you know, Robin, I've been here a few days, I'm going to have to resign because it's too hard, I can't do it. And he said, well, you know, why don't you get Dave back and write down every step rather than just watching him do it and then try to do it again. So I got Dave back because he was of music at the time. And um, I said, right, step one, you know, press alt four, step two, do this. So I wrote down every step in a completely patterned fashion. And I managed to do it at that point cause because I, I kind of did it. I did it. I read a bit of paper, pressed a button. Read a bit of paper, pressed a button like that. So I managed to get it to work, all right. So, and in the end, I quite enjoyed doing the Game Boy. It was quite good fun trying to see what you could get out of it because it's very limited, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, and Dave's music was great on dksa 2 Really good tunes to kind of work with. So uh, yeah, that was that was my first experience of it. And then after about. A few, I guess a couple of months, uh, Graham Norgate was doing um, Blastcore and Goldeneye at the same time. And he said, I'm really busy with Blastcore. Do you mind taking over Goldeneye? And I was like, geez, he's joking. I'd love to take over Goldeneye. So um, so it was agreed that I did Game Boy in the morning and then they did Goldeneye in the afternoon. And that's how it worked out. <laughs> I did that.
0: So that is my daily routine as well. Game Boy <laughs> in the morning, Goldeneye in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so there was Project Dream, right? Right, yeah. And that got cancelled and that got revamped into Banjo. Did you do that before GoldenEye? Was that happening
1: before no, GoldenEye? That was af- no, no, that was after. So I did GoldenEye for probably about, maybe not quite a year. Um, and then it was uh, Tim Stamper, the guy who ran the company with his brother Chris Stamper. He, the two brothers had their own games and Tim's own game was Dream. And it was always a bit of a special thing, Tim's own game. Because Tim's own game used to be the Donkey Kong series. But he did the first two, then took the team off to do Dream. And left DKC3 to somebody else, to another team so and dave was doing the music for dream uh and then um one day uh tim uh one night it was actually like a, maybe like eight thirty at night i was sat in my little room and the uh, knock at the door and, and chris tamper brought in um a lot of Japanese blokes, so I didn't know who they were. Actually, it was Mr. Arakawa I didn't know at the time. Uh, it was quite a bit of a big deal, really. Uh, and he said, yes, Grant, uh, so uh, can you play some music for us, please? I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired any, any minute now. You know, I'm so bad. Um, so I played my kind of uh, golden eye tunes, and they all kind of had a little chat, and then left. I thought, oh, that's it. And then the next day, uh, Tim came in with an, this young bloke I didn't know who he was. And, and, this, and Tim sat on the floor. And this other lad sat in the chair, and I was thinking, oh, God, this must be so important because if Tim's on the floor, who who on earth is this bloke sat in the chair, you know? Just to play some tunes, Grant. I was like, oh, I'm getting fired for definite, you know? Um, so um, play some tunes again, and then Tim said, right, so, yeah, we like that. So uh, we like to come and work on Dream now. And I was like, my God, this is a big game, you know? I was So I, I said, well, oh, yeah. I said, well, uh, of course, Tim, I'll, you know, when I finish GoldenEye, I'll come across. No, 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 you're done with GoldenEye now. Dream. And that was it. I just oh. had to pack it was like I was like, oh, okay. So I was off Goldeneye. I hadn't finished it. Moved across to the to the block that the the Dream Team were in, and uh, started working on Dream. And then Dream was like it was originally on original the snares. It was a bit like a Zelda RPG thing, really. It was a cool game, um, and then it kind of switched across to the N64 and became 3D. Mm-hmm. And it was a big kind of scrolling big thing. Uh, not scrolling sorry a big kind of open world you know walk around thing and there's a really, really kind of elaborate system where you could stretch the floor to any shape with the polygons so you can make this really fantastic elaborate uh kind of back, uh, you know landscapes but the n64 couldn't run it so we had real problems getting it to run uh and then at that point um the conquer team were doing Conker's 12 tails and they, had, they were doing it the kind of mario 64 route with big sort of textures on the floor so you could you know you could do a lot more with the machine so we were, all, we were all kind of trooped across to the Conquer bar to see Conker and it looked fantastic. We were all like, oh God, our game's crap and their game's fantastic. Uh, and then Tim was, right, that's it. We're changing it all. Uh, we're going to do a 3D platformer. We're dumping Dream and we're going to start again. So we just basically started again. And we'd been working on it for a good year, probably a bit longer than that actually. Uh, and then it was transferred into a platform game and originally Tim was keen to use animals because he liked using animals uh, for the characters. And a rabbit was originally going to be the main character and then it kind of changed to a bear. And then he got a, a, you know, a backpack, and then it kind of it got handy to put things in, and then Kazooie got born, and then that, then it was, became Banjo kazooie and that was it. It was just like all that big change. So it went from being RPG to platformer, you know, within about a year when I was there, probably.
0: Mm. And then I suppose GoldenEye and Banjo, you had those under your belt, and you was like, oh, I'm. Everything's everything's going well now.
1: <laughs> I guess it sort of was, you know. I th- I think sometimes when you're in a company like that, Rare was very insular. If that's the right word. They didn't like any kind of interference from outside, so it was kept very private. Sure, we couldn't do any interviews. They didn't like doing interviews. Timmy so say that we're not pop stars. We'll just make games, right? We don't need to do interviews. Let the games do the talking. You know, there's no point to have any contact with anybody. So it was very like that, and the teams were kept very separate too. Each team was in a different barn. And it you had a coded key. He couldn't, couldn't get into somebody else's barn to see what they were doing. It was all very secret amongst the teams. Mm. It, was, it kind of encouraged that kind of friendly rivalry to try and better the other teams to do a better game than them. So it kept everybody on the toes, right? Um, so, but it was all good nature, don't get me wrong. Um, but um, so, you know, it was, that, it was that kind of place. So, you know, GoldenEye was a very slow, it was a really slow burner. Like a lot of games come out these days and have a really massive spike at the start then it kind of just fade away. And GoldenEye was opposite to that. GoldenEye sort of crept out and it slowly got word of mouth. And it got bigger and, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And no one was more surprised than we were, really. Um, it got to that kind of massive level of, like, everyone was playing it. It was a big college game at the time, playing the college Dons in America, you know, on the four-player, mm. all that stuff. And ironically, the, the multiplayer was a bit the Nintendo Unreal didn't want. They thought it was a bad idea, and they told the team not to do it. Um, and the team did it in secret, and right at the end of the game, unveiled it and said, look, by the way, we've been doing this. What do you think? And it got in the game right at the end. Like... <laughs> You think that's amazing, right? Because that that kind of multiplayer sold the game, really, didn't it? It's like, you know, one of the best... Yeah,
0: that's what it's remembered for.
1: Yeah, so that was uh, just amazing. Uh, And then Banjo did really well, but it came out late. So we didn't, you know, it was was quite a missed Christmas and came out the following summer. You know, so uh, that did all right. So, you know, I don't think anybody at Rare had an ego at all. I think everybody just wanted to make the best games they could. Everybody felt really grateful to be there because Rare was a great place. The Stamper family were great bosses great to all the staff you know It was, it was was. I guess it was just like a magical place to be at that time I guess that was the golden age of Rare around about that time so you know everybody was, was super grateful to be there we just wanted to make great games so there was none of that kind of let's get wrapped up in how much how many copies of games so let's get on to the next one and make it even better you know so it was a bit mm. like that so it was a great atmosphere to be around you know
0: I mean it helped that there wasn't like a massive publisher that was holding Rare in its hands there was no massive amount of pressure it was just Let's make some decent games. Oh, it was decent and it sold well. Cool, let's make another decent game. Um, I think if it had been owned by, like, a gigantic publisher at the time, it would have been a very different setting.
1: Yeah, I mean, Nintendo did on Fortune I'm certain, the company, but, but the Stamford family still had the the you know, the know commanding interest, so they could dictate what went on. But also, like Tim and Chris, and also Joel Hochberg, who was the American branch of Rare, uh did a great job at sheltering us all from the kind of Nintendo fury. So, you know, when Nintendo, you know, usually speaking rare games were late uh, just because Tim would, Tim wouldn't let it out the door till it was as perfect as it could be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, but we didn't know if Nintendo were like blowing a fuse, like where's this bloody game, you know, it's actually, you know, Tim would, they, he'd keep the, all the fire away from the teams. So, we just kind of bumbled along happily, <laughs> you know, making <laughs> games and didn't know whether Nintendo wanted to blow up the, the entire the entire place, you know, because they're so mad at the game being late. Um, so, yeah, we kind of got sheltered from that. But the rare thing always was, you know, let it out, put the game out when it's good and not until. And if it takes a bit longer, tough luck. I think when you've got like a publisher and shareholders breathing down your neck, they've got quarterly budgets to, to fulfill and all that nonsense have to kind of deal with. Like at Rare, there was none of that. It was a family on place. I guess a bit like Ubisoft. Really. Ubisoft likes a family on place, right? They put the games out when they're ready, um, most of the time. You know, so I think that, um, that was great for us. And I remember we had a massive, we had a big meeting at the E3. Um, it was the E3 before Banjo was supposed to come out, so I guess it was like 98, maybe June, and it was supposed to be out in Christmas that year. And we had a, a private meeting with the Banjo team and Howard Lincoln, uh, who was at that time number two in command at Nintendo America. He's a very sca- very scary man. He's, he was known for being a scary man. Very quietly spoken, but super scary. And he just sort of sat down and said, "Yes, my name's Harold Lincoln. I'm uh, whatever his title was at Nintendo. Um, we have five billion in the bank and no debts. And that's how he started the conversation. And we went, oh, and we all sat there and just chat ourselves instantly. And he said, yeah. he said, guys, I just want to make it clear to you just how much we're committed to this Banjo Kazooie game. Just just so you understand. And he's listed off this massive amount of expense had gone to, like twenty million in advertising. It was all locked in." No, it was no way they could take the money back. It was all spent, and we were all. He said, "Just, just, just so you know that. So the game's going to be out for Christmas, right?" We're like, "Yes, yes, Howard." And we all knew there was not a cat in hell's chance of getting it out for Christmas. There's no way we could do it. Um, so he just, you know, we were all sat there pale face, going, "Oh my God, he's going to murder us the minute he finds out." <laughs>
0: Lying to mum so that he can get told off later. Instead, I
1: know one of the guys, Graham Smith, there was so upset he he, he went back to the hotel and stayed in for the entire night. He was he was, he was so nervous he couldn't walk out the door. Um, so uh, you know. We get back to the UK and, and Tim conveys the message that actually Banjo isn't going to make it. But um, we had that RC Pro-Am Racing thing that we were doing at the time, um, which contained some of various characters. Uh, and uh, they said, look, you know, we've got this instead. What about this? And Nintendo said, tell you what, put some Donkey Kong characters in the game, call it Diddy Kong Racing, we'll stick it out instead. And that's what happened. So they got all the kind of Banjo advertising budget, all that stuff that we saw just, just go away. We're like, oh my God, everything we wanted was just gone. So Diddy Kong Racing. And the game sold a gazillion copies and did really well, right? Um, and that's why Banjo's in that game before Banjo was actually, was actually out because it was supposed to come out after Banjo. Um, so yeah, lucky for us that Nintendo were happy with that. But that was one of those scary moments where you just kind of shit yourself <laughs> completely. <laughs> Conker
0: was in that game in, in Diddy Kong Racing. Right. Was there already ideas for Conker at that time already then as well?
1: Uh, there must have been yeah there must have been yeah i mean conker was conker was going a long time i think i think conker was going before before banjo it just took longer to get it out the door cuz there there a redesign halfway through right so yeah it just got delayed um but yeah
0: fair enough um so then uh you know you had a great run for the next couple of years at rare you did donkey kong 64 which was fantastic and <laughs> most people will remember it for that rap now and then I don't, other than that <laughs> i don't hear people talk about the game that much
1: i know it's funny that i was thinking the other day that you know I'll probably be most remembered when I'm gone for the DK rap. <laughs> it's just like, you know, for all the music I've written, I keep thinking, oh, God, I'm going to be known for that more than anything else. <laughs> it's slightly depressing. But, yeah, so, you know, it's it's good fun at the time, so, you know.
0: Yeah. Um, and then, I guess, the Microsoft purchase happened at some point yeah. down the line. Um, yeah. How did that change the dynamic of the company, if at all? Or were you shielded from it again?
1: Well, at first, we thought it wouldn't change it at all, right? Because... There was a few, there was like, because Activision also wanted to buy the company. Nintendo mm-hmm. decided not to, do, not to do the full buyout. They offered like 80% of the money and Tim said, no, we want a full buyout or you, or you, you get rid of the shares. So they, they, they didn't want to do that. So at that point, Activision and Microsoft both came in with offers for the company. Um, and quite a few people at Rare were quite keen to do the Activision thing because it would have been great for Rare to be multi-platform and not just stuck with one console, you know. Mm-hmm. But at that time, Activision weren't massive uh, and they didn't have the cash actually to fork up for Rare. Had to kind of give, you know, give some shares in the company, which would have been, would have been great because Activision wanted to be massive, right? You could have got a great payout from that. But Microsoft, at the last minute, came in with like three hundred seventy-five million dollars, which was like this was like fifty million more than Activision offered, something ridiculous like that. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, we all went, yeah, great. And Ed Freeze was uh, was head of MGS at the time, so he, Ed Freeze was a great games player, and we all thought we, t- we had a lot of faith in him um, as a kind of a guy, you know, to kind of you know understand what Rare was about. Uh, but more just about the, the time that they bought the company, Ed Freeze quit, and we were like, "Oh my god!" And then Shane Kim became head of MGS. He was a, he was, you know, Shane Kim was a, just a business manager, right? He wasn't a gamer, so I mm-hmm. guess we felt that, you know, perhaps perhaps not the best move at the time. So I think from that point onwards, it just kind of went downhill for me. Uh, I did enjoy doing Grab by the Goonies, and I enjoyed doing Viva Pinata because that was a great score for me. That's my where I got my BAFTA nomination from, and it was a—you know—I used live orchestra for that. But mm-hmm. after doing Viva Panita Two and Banjo Kazooie and bolts, I was like, mm, I'm just not like it anymore. It's not the place that it, that it was for me. Tim and Chris left. Um Without those two, I, I liked Tim and Chris an awful lot. I, I worked with Tim closely, probably more than Chris, but I really liked the Stamper family. They were all there, and you know, it, for me, it just lost the magic when they left. Sure. I, I just don't need to be here anymore. I need to be somewhere else. So that was that.
0: Fair enough. Um, before we move on to your post-Rare stuff, uh, back onto Viva Piñata quickly. Mm-hmm. That is my favourite soundtrack you've done. Um, oh. Actually, probably specifically Troubling Paradise, but both of them. I used to, <laughs> I used to go to sleep listening to the soundtrack. Oh. It, would help me, it would help me get to sleep. Um, that's nice. Some, it was particularly during some rough times, it was pretty, you know, that's your most important soundtrack to me oh, for sure.
1: that's awesome like you know for me to write that soundtrack was super special like it's the first time i really got to write something that i would, I would probably write if i wasn't working as a composer just for my, in my own spare time i mm-hmm. love that kind of soothing i guess i call it like kind of elgar von esque even though i can't write as good as those guys no way but that was my attempt at that kind of like classic english sound if you like um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, loved, I really poured my heart into that soundtrack, especially that, like I say, Trouble in Paradise is my favorite too, because I, at that point I knew I was going to be leaving Rare. Uh, I'd handed him a resignation, so I knew I was going to be going. So, mm-hmm. you know, I really poured my heart into that, and especially that track Bedtime Story. That was my, like my kind of swan song to Rare to say I'm leaving, you know, and that's a super sad track. And I just, that's my favorite track of mine from that game. Although I do like that Tranquil Hours as well. But Bedtime Story was my kind of, you know, look out the window at Rares and writing it, going, "I'm going to be leaving soon." It was super sad. Um, so, yeah, I, I loved writing that soundtrack. It was super special for me.
0: And it gets played on Classic FM and stuff sometimes. I, I would just hear it in a car. i would just hear Viva Pinata come on. I'm like, sweet, nice.
1: Yeah, that that is also really special for me to have a track like that. Any kind of track from Viva Pinata played back in Blighty, my home, you know, country. You know, uh, on Classic FM is like, if my mom and dad were alive, they would never believe that they would hear my, one of my pieces on of classic fm they, they would never have believed it right you know so that for me is, so every time classic fm play a track however few times that may happen to be it's so special when i find out about it like i just i'm probably in tears most of the time you know so i've just found that amazing here's
0: a track by mozart now here's a track from viva piada that's right doesn't seem right does it <laughs> <laughs> okay so then you um went freelance.
1: Yeah, more or less. I'm kind of, I went to Big Huge Games first in Baltimore to do that Kingdoms of Amalur: Reckoning. So I was an yes. employee then. Uh, so I did that. I was the audio director, but I did the score as well. So yeah, I spent four years there, and then we moved across to California after that.
0: Oh, okay. I, I thought you were freelance for them. I didn't realize you were actually working for them.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. I was, I was, I was actually the audio director at that company for, well, four years. Uh, 2008, 2012. And then I shifted over here then.
0: Ah, okay. And that, And you won more awards, more lovely awards?
1: Well, like it looks like it. <laughs> I actually, I've been nominated quite a few times, but I've never actually won. I should tell a lie. Uh, I think the first Civilization Beyond Earth soundtrack won a, a few awards. Um, mm-hmm. I was part of a team there, Jeff Knorr and Griffin Cohen and Michael Curran uh, doing that game. But, so I've been nominated a ton of times, but I've never actually won an award just for me. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> right. I live in hope, but I've not got one yet.
0: And then this is one, this is a game in particular I wanted to talk about. Um, Castle of Illusion, starring Mickey Mouse. Right. But we had like a brief conversation on Twitter about this game once. Um, Okay. And its soundtrack, because I'm I'm a big preservation person, both with video games and video game music and everything in general. And that soundtrack is, or at least was, just gone. You couldn't find it anywhere. And the game is now uh, unlisted, I believe, as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I guess that was, like, a friend of mine, Jeremy Taylor, who I knew from Harrogate years ago, he ended up working at, um, uh, oh, who did it? It was, uh, Sega Australia, was it, I guess? Must have been. No, it's Sega. It was, um, God, where was he? I can put, maybe it was Sega Australia. I forgot the term, the company, it's ridiculous. But anyway, so he was there, and he said, we need a composer. Do you want to do it? And we were friends. So of course I'll do it, you know. So, mm. um. He said, well, I want to use some of, the, some of the music from the original game, and then you can do some of your own stuff, mix it together. You know, I said, great, great fun. So, and they were planning on doing the, there's two more games after that first, wasn't they? Like, yeah. yeah, and they were planning on doing all three of them. That was like, oh. fantastic. Yeah, that was the plan, right? Uh, oh, I was like, oh, nice. this, is fan- this is fantastic, because I really, it was great fun. I thought the game looked fantastic. I really liked it. I thought it was great on an iPad. Um, mm. And uh, But alas, when the game came out, they shut the company. Uh, and that was it. It was gone. So... I mean, I do have the files. Uh, some of them, are I put some of them on, on Sound... Sound... What's it called? SoundCloud. Yeah, they're, they're on there somewhere. I, put, I could probably dig them out. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so... But, yeah, that was it. It was very sad. I mean, I thought that was a... I thought that was a, good, a great idea, to put that game on. I thought it looked great on, on the iPad. I think it worked really well, so...
0: I thought it was a, it was a really good game. I thought it was yeah. really
1: decent. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I, thought, I couldn't believe that. But the thing was, I think at the time, right, it was that thing after the crash, where I think that Australia it was a really bad exchange rate. So it meant it was really expensive to have a company in Australia at the time because everyone was, everyone, no, Australia managed to keep... They weathered the financial storm in 2008, right? They didn't get a crash like everybody else in the world did, but they didn't crash. So as it was coming back, they were pricey compared to everybody else in the world. So for Sega, I guess, it was too much money to keep the team in Australia, so they closed the studio. Right. And that was that.
0: That's a shame, really. And then I guess the licensing stuff is just because it's Mickey Mouse and corporate nonsense.
1: Yeah, I even think Disney said to me that I couldn't put the tracks on my website, which <sighs> um, I kind of thought I was a bit daft. Like, what's it matter? You know, you know, it's not like you know, people can rip them anyway. It doesn't make a difference.
0: Yeah,
1: but that's the way it was. So yeah, very sad that was.
0: Yeah, that is a shame. Um, I really like that soundtrack. I thought it was really good. Um, no, and I liked like
1: that game. Well, I like I like writing it. Like it's it was nice to get to touch some of the original soundtrack and get some of my own stuff in there. And I love that kind of I love that kind of magical game. Right, like, I guess it's my favorite thing. I like that. I like writing magic stuff. That's my favorite thing probably. So you know, it's great to do it. So yeah, it was a shame.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize they were going to make the other ones. That would have been really great if they had remade the other Mickey Mouse games. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, that was that was a that was the plan. Yeah.
0: And then I suppose um, we'll move to the ukulele. So I guess you would have been involved in the conversations very early on.
1: Yeah, like even prior to that, we had a little. We had a we had a while. All the guys were still at Ray. We had a little secret meeting. Or oh, they did. I was in, I was in America, but they had a little secret meeting in a pub. In I uh, think I think Bur <laughs> I think Burbage was a the place they met. It was like that's
0: where all good ideas start.
1: <laughs> of course, Burbage is a hot hub of hot, hot ideas. Um, <laughs> and uh they met, and we had, a, we had the plan was to try and make another platform like Banjo Kazooie. And uh, we had a little demo actually on the iPad going, uh which kind of, which basically did the stuff like that. But at the time, it was wrong. Everybody, I was still at Bakers Games, and um, the rest of the guys were still at Rare, and we just didn't have the time to do it. So I kind of just kind of fell flat. And then it it kind of resurfaced probably about a year or so later, probably. I can't quite think of the time, the timeline. And um, Rare had a big big round of layoffs. And they'd laid off like some pretty senior people like Chris Sutherland, which was crazy because he's he's so fantastic. Um, It was the first time really that the core of the banjo team were available. And some of the guys actually quit Rare to do it. They left behind a stable (coughs) job to do this thing because they wanted to do it. So... um, yeah I guess, and because I had a reasonable twitter following at the start, I could probably get the word out there quite fast it was It was handy that I built it up over the years by a complete fluke again, so um it made a good platform to try and let everyone know that we we're, we're going to try and do it, and you know were they really interested was anybody out there you know th- think it was a good idea? Mm-hmm. And we got such a positive response that it was like, well, let's do it so Gavin Price, who was one of the designers on uh, Viva pinata and uh other and I think Goolies too, I think probably um he um he was like, bit, he, he, him and his wife, right, while he was still at Rare, they uh, got a cake shop in, in Burton-on-Trent. <laughs> so Gav was used to like just business loans and paying wages and all that kind of crap that none of the rest of us were used to. So Gav was like, tell you what, I'm going to put it together. I'm going to found a company and I'm going, to, I'm going to sort it. And really without him, it would never have happened. Because the rest of us layabouts would never sort it out. Like me, Steve Mayles, Chris Crystal, Stephen Hurst, any of those guys would never have done it. It would have just been a complete disaster. But he True. was like, "I'm going to do it. I'm going to sort it out." And, be, and off he went and did it. And they're like, "Wow, he's got a company. He's got some money. People can go work at it." And I was still a contract, and I'm not a member. Of the, I'm not a member of Platonic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. But um, but you know, I'm a, I, I guess I was an integral part of the start. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was it. So Gaffer Up was going to do a Kickstarter. You know, and that was it. And we really thought that. 270 grand would probably do it and you know we might take a couple of weeks to get there but you know wouldn't it be nice and then at that point commit the game right you know and that was the plan and then of course you know that was gone in the first 40 minutes of the kickstarter it was ridiculous um and you know 2.3 million pounds later whatever it was yeah it's like oh my god you know at that point you all completely shit yourself because you think now you know we can't let anybody down now <laughs> we've got to make a good game you know
0: yeah because it started off as a passion project and it was like oh now it is a big deal
1: yeah, I mean, like, I think, you know, when the reviews came out, some were a little bit tepid, and I kind of felt that was a slightly unfair. And you get people like Jim Sterling, you give it a two out of ten. I mean, even if you hate the game, right, it's not a two. If you hate the game, it's still a five. It's still well put together. You know, and I guess people forget that you, you clearly got judged on a AAA kind of meter because they thought that the team had made Banjo-Kazooie, which is true, but it's still an indie studio.
0: I should probably say at this point that I didn't review it that positively.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess but I guess uh, uh, people's opinion, I kind of felt that, you know, 10 people really made the brunt of that game. They only staffed up towards, again, the last six months, say. So Mm. to bring out that game with that small team and to bring out what they did, you know, I think it's pretty, it was pretty, it was very, very well done.
0: Oh yeah. It's still a massive amount, massive amount of talent. Um, And... You know, it, it was very clearly a passion project. Like, you could tell that people cared about that
1: game. I totally get that. I just kind of felt that, um, you know, maybe people probably, I guess it's hard to kind of understand sometimes people, you know, slag games off, you know, you know, kind of thing. No one sets out to make a bad game. It's not like any team does that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think Yuka, I still think there's life in Yuka Yeah, I think when, you, when it gets onto the Switch, I think it'll have a new lease of life. And it, did, mm-hmm. it wasn't like it did badly. It did well. Um, you just We just kind of felt that, some of the reviews were a bit like, you know, it's, uh, the, you know, it was, it was almost like people hadn't played a platform like that for so many years they forgot what it's like to be frustrated by not knowing where you're supposed to go. And that was after mm-hmm. fun, right? <laughs> I think Vatikazooie, you didn't know where you're supposed to go. And, I, you know, half the time because you didn't know where you were going, you know. Um, I think people are unused to that, unused to that kind of camera thing. Um, but that big update they've just done or it's about to come out, that's got tons of fixes in it. They've got a different camera system for people who want to play a different way. They've got a few arrows to point people where they want to go. You know, so I felt that some of the criticism was slightly unfair. shall we say That's what I kind of felt um I mean they all tried super hard to make that the best it possibly could be, and i like I say again, they people forget it was a ten man team like most ten man teams can't produce that quality of game in that amount of time. It's mm-hmm. too hard, It's only because the guys are so good at what they do you know uh, so um yeah, but i mean i don't want to I don't want to make it sound like i'm I think Yuka's a bad game because it isn't. I just felt some of the reviews may be slightly unfair, that's what I felt. But everyone's entitled to that, so I guess, you know, there you go.
0: Fair enough. I know that you're not employed there, but I assume you've at least considered, if they were to do another game, to work on it with them.
1: Absolutely. But I, I can neither confirm nor deny, etc. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, yeah I mean, you know, think about those guys, they're my friends, right? So they're my friends from 1995, so hmm. uh, whatever they want me to do, I'd happily do it, I don't care what it is. Like, you know, if I want to work on another game for them, consider it done, you know. So um, that's never going to change, um, yeah. you know. So, uh, yeah.
0: Last thing I want to cover then is Marrow and Rabbids Kingdom Battle.
1: Hooray! <laughs>
0: Hooray! Um, which I still haven't finished, by the way, because I used my Switch almost exclusively on the train. Right. During my commute. So it's like a handheld device to me. I'm on The Last World, so everyone's finished. Right. Um, but yeah so that's been that's lasted me like two weeks at the moment um i absolutely love that game that game is fantastic
1: i'm glad to hear it like i think the switch is such a great gadget right you can't you know i don't think you realize until you really get that get to the handheld part that you just pick it up at your house and take it with you and just keep playing well it's just such a smart gadget that is it's a great console
0: yes fantastic console Mm. um and your soundtrack for it was awesome obviously
1: Glad you liked it. I tried super hard.
0: <laughs> you know, I've already seen all the uh, interviews you've given in regards to that game and stuff, but yeah, it seemed like you were panicking when you found out it was a Mario game.
1: Oh my God, you, absolutely. I, you know, you know it, it's hard to put that into words, really. Like when Davide just started playing it and said, oh yeah, it's a Mario game, did no one tell you? I was like, what? Like, you know, <laughs> that was so shocking. Like, what do you mean it's a Mario game? Yes, it, I just sat there pale-faced for easy one like hour. I mean, they thought I hated the game racks. Right? I just didn't say a word. I was so scared. Um You know, because like getting to touch Mario is one thing, but having to follow Koji Kondo, who's like you know probably the greatest video games composer ever i mean mm-hmm. my god it's it 's like and like and then I start thinking am i am I the first western composer to ever write for a variant? i couldn't i didn't know if that's true or not, but i thought it might be true, so if i 'm the first guy that in the west non Nintendo to write for this game, and I balls it up that's i 'm just gonna be hated for the rest of <laughs> rest of my life, right, <laughs> you know, so that was like you know it's equal parts scary but equal parts exciting to think that i could get to write for Mario. my god that's just gonna be amazing but if i balls it up it's gonna be like a tragedy you know so yeah that was all that stuff rolled together
0: um and the soundtrack was great i uh you know it was fantastic i like that you managed to uh to get a a lyrical song in there somewhere with phantom singing
1: Oh yeah, I mean Davide is like a is a huge rare fan, right? So he loved Conquer, and I, he, he said, "You know, I've waited, I've waited twenty years to get an opera song in the game. Yeah, he, he couldn't wait to get his first chance to get it in the game. So he just he was so happy that he got the chance. And it was originally supposed to be." There's three acts, right? Well, there's only two now, but there's supposed to be three. We didn't we did run, run out of time. It's supposed to be an opera song for one, a metal song for the next, and a rap song for the next. <laughs> so, so I had to, like, demo the tracks. I had to kind of sing the opera parts and then rap, and then, you know, because I'm a great rapper, of course, and, yeah, uh, and, and do a metal version. So those those versions still exist. So Davide's got those for, for like, blackmail value for later. Um, <laughs> but, like, um, yeah, so, yeah. so the, uh, But then it was decided that we d- this didn't sound right, so we went back to... Um, opera songs and there, i said there is three but there's only two acts in the game because we just couldn't get we had run out of time but that was sure. like and christina nava wrote uh, in the it was of milan she wrote the lyrics and i did the music uh, so uh that was like super fun to do i mean you know this guy sang it great and the humor's great and there was some lines we had to take out with some reference to, to mamma mia and diarrhea with mario but been <laughs> but nintendo <laughs> want to, wanted to take that out so too, you know they, they were pretty good at letting mario get a bit roasting you know but um some of it they wouldn't let us have, so Diarrhea had to go. I've got that version somewhere, actually. I thought probably the version that David has got, actually.
0: That's when you need a black mountain Nintendo. That That's what
1: that was for. <laughs> I know, right, yeah. Yeah, give me another game I'm going to put it out. <laughs> uh, you know, so, no, I mean, you know, the, the entire process of working on Mario Rabbids was, was fantastic from start to finish. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating, but... I mean, is a great guy. Uh, all the other guys I dealt with, like uh, Xavier Madenares and Gianmarco, uh, Zana and uh, Romain Brio, the sound guy. And everyone, I met, I met the guys at Milan a little bit in July when I went across. Like, it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. And they were so nice to me. And we didn't fight about anything. And it just went great. Like, it's been the best experience, really. You, you know, you don't get that that often. And mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, fantastic, really fantastic.
0: I like that you seem to have a little bromance with Davide on Twitter.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Like, we, you know, he likes to take the piss right. He, 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 I think when you first get to know somebody, you don't know how, if you can do that or not. You don't to if, if they take it to heart. But he's yeah. just like he's just like me. So, and the rest of the guys are too. So, it's just one big massive piss take for the entire time. So, you know, it's just, it's been good fun. I mean, like, you know, you know, I, I have spoken to Davide probably every day for two years, and that's no exaggeration, and Romain Brio, the guy in, in, in Paris. Like, you know, we've we've it communicated, either uh, Sky- Skyped it or emailed or something or WhatsApp, whatever, every single day for two years. So we're best mates now. Like, you know, it's like we're just best mates. So it's great that we can take the piss and we don't get offended and all that. And, you know, it's, that's the best working relationship. We can get to that point where you just get along and you can take the mickey and no one cares and say it's yeah, shit absolutely. and no one cares. And, you know, and that's how you get the best stuff right. When you walk on eggshells with people, it never works out, you know. So, no, it's been brilliant. David is a great guy. I really like him.
0: I think him being a great guy really sold that game to people as well. Because obviously the game leaked before E three and people were really people weren't sure what to think. Because if you just hear Mario Rabbits, it sounds a bit odd. Yeah. But then they saw David at E three. Yeah. Um, and that actually ended up being a really good bit of PR because people were like, Look how passionate this man is. Look how look how much he actually cares about this game that he's made. Look how much oh, he loves yeah. it. And yeah. it really sold people on that.
1: Oh yeah, I think you know Davide's that classic, emotional Italian. He really is, you know. And I, you know, I'd send him peaches and he'd be crying. You know what I mean? <laughs> when I first did *Peaches*, he was in tears. Oh, take your music is, you know, like, you know, you know, like you know. So, uh, you know, and I think that when I was sat two seats down from Davide, and when he, when Mimo Moto said his name, I said, "For God's sake, Davide, just I was pushing, said get up and take a bow." You know, so that's when he started to cry. He didn't want to, didn't want to be <laughs> to be seen. You know, <laughs> you know. And, but he's a really genuine guy, and I kind of felt that when people played the game, they they kept saying, you can really feel a passion in it. And I think that's something that's really, I don't think you can manufacture that. You Mm -hmm. can't trying to be passionate when you don't feel it. And I think the entire team in Milan and Paris like really felt the passion for this game. Like, I mean, like I did. I think, you know, getting to touch that property of Mario is so special that, Mm -hmm. you know, those things don't come along that many times in life, you know. So, everyone wanted to try so hard to make it as best they possibly could. and wouldn't take second best for anything, you know. And you know, that that just bled through the entire team, the entire thing, the entire game. It just it's there in every kind, in every frame, you know. Um, so I think that I guess people started to feel that, and I, you know, I think that's I guess like Banjo Kazooie, people can feel something, some kind of heart in that game
0: mm-hmm. that you
1: just you don't know you don't know why you can't work out how you got it in there, but it's in there, and it's just because everybody tried so hard. Everybody mm-hmm. had felt that. I don't know. i waffle out about this for hours about how you can work it out, but you know, it it, it was a special thing. So. All of us felt that super special thing that, oh, my God. You know, for me, especially, like, Mario 64 was, like, my my game, right? When I first bought, first worked at Rare, first bought an N64. That was my first game. Played it to death, you know. You know, and that castle theme was fantastic. And getting to getting for me to get to use that in my Peach's Castle theme was just, like, unbelievable. Like, you know, I was in tears doing that, you know. Mm-hmm. My son was walking past the room going, Dad, can you believe that, you know, you're getting to work with that piece of music. I mean, I said, I can't believe it either, Max. It's, it's amazing, you know? So, you know, there's so many little moments like that throughout the entire game and everybody just, just, you know, tried super, super hard. And just, I don't know. I guess it's, I guess it's paid off. It's the, everyone's who's like the game, but but like you say, when that first leak came out, it was very disheartening for the team to see people going, oh, rabbits. Oh my God, it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. We couldn't speak out, but I mean, it seems like a really odd pairing, but once, it's, once you see it, it's really great. It's, it's Davide thought about it. Like, it's his idea. It's a great, what a great idea to bung those two characters together. Like, mm-hmm. And it, you know, that, it really works because they're stupidly crazy and a bit like the minions. And the, I mean, they predate the minions, for God's sake. And mm-hmm. I mean, is that, you, everyone knows Mario. So it just makes total sense when you see it. But when you hear it, you go, oh God, it's going to be dreadful.
0: I mean, it's crazy. It does work. I mean, it works yeah. so well, but you would never guess that just hearing the title. You never would, which is why people were so funny about it. Um, but it, yeah, it, it so easily could have gone wrong. But oh, that game is amazing.
1: No, know When you go, it's a strategy game. What? It's a strategy game with Mar- ever's going strategy game with Mario and and it's got guns in it. Yeah. You know, no one people think you're crazy, right? Um, but it's such the the rabbits bring such a level of stupid humor, like the princess, you know, Rabbit Peach with all the selfies and all, You know, it's just it's there's so much humor in that game. And Davide is a massive fan of the old rare humor. So he tried to get that in there. That's what he, he was trying to inject some of that old kind of rare style humor into the game. And I think mm. he did it. And it's like, it's all over the place, right? And Nintendo said, you know, you, you've got to break Mario. You, we can't do it, but you can. You know, within reason, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so, um, yeah, who'd, who would have thought it would have turned out like, like it did? But now at the start, I was just in panic. So I wasn't thinking about it. But, you know, who would have thought it of all the things? I mean, hats off to David and, and the guys in Milan who brainstormed it. A fantastic idea. It really is
0: yeah I, I, it's now the best-selling third-party uh game on the switch
1: that's amazing right No, yeah, amazing amazing
0: yeah um and it deserves it i i would love to see that become a thing i'd love that to, to become a franchise um which me, i think yeah. it deserves to because me too yeah me too.
1: Yeah. oh yeah me too i'd love to do, do another one yeah it'd be fantastic fun you know let's fingers crossed and wait until it happens you just never know with these things do you but i mean um you know it's been received super well so let, i don't know fingers crossed eh yeah fingers crossed for sure
0: um, I am going to let you go. I'm going to quickly mention some of the things that you're doing. Uh, you're working on A Hat in Time and uh, Hex Heroes. Is there anything uh, else well, you're
1: working on? Well, actually fin- I did those ages ago, right? They just take a long time yeah, to come out. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure. I, I did two tunes on A uh, Hat in Time, and I, I did uh, the score to Hex Heroes, yeah. Um, I'm doing stuff right now, of course, but of course it's that stuff you can't talk about, you know, the way it goes. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, but I actually, was, I actually had a little bit of a break in the summer. I was kind of quite glad, because I've worked so hard on... I really had been seven days a week since last February. It just In fact, mm. just the start of 2016, I started every day. And, like, it was a, you know, I guess it's that thing where I, I always thought I was infallible. Like, when I was at Rare, I never once blinked. It was like, yeah, I'll get it done. Even when I was doing Perfect Dark and DK64 and banjo Two at the same time, I still, I still thought, yeah, I, I'm, I write fast, no problem. You know, so last year was the first time I kind of went, oh, I think I've taken on a bit too much. So I was doing, like... <laughs> you know rabbits and ukulele i did the ghostbusters game i did um that movie the king's daughter drop zone the Mm -hmm. game as well so i had a massive year last year and i guess i slightly shit myself (laughs) you know you know but i I managed to get it done but the first time i kind of thought i'm not gonna make it and i never felt like that before so i guess i've learned my lesson that i'm not infallible that you know everyone's got the limits (laughs) so yeah
0: not not to take on six projects at once that's a good idea.
1: Yes, perhaps not the best idea. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so right now I'm all right. So uh, I've, just, I've just sort of, really, I've just sort of started again, I guess a couple of weeks ago on the next lot of stuff. So, uh, you know, I should be talking about that hopefully soon, you know, fingers crossed, etc.
0: <laughs> Lovely stuff. I'm, I am deeply looking forward to it. I shall let you go because you have a life. <laughs> I'll let you go. But thank you very much. This has been absolutely amazing. And I'm looking forward to hearing uh, some more of your work.
1: Hey, Ryan, thanks for talking to me. It's very kind of you to ask me in the first place.
0: No, absolutely. This was this was great, and I'm sure other people will find it very interesting. All right, great stuff. Uh, right, thank you for listening, everyone. Please make sure you subscribe. Please make sure that you listen to some more episodes. We have some more great guests coming up. We have Team Meat on, hopefully, in the next episode. So that would be great, too. You can support the Toad on Games podcast on Patreon, at ToadsAnime, which is the exact same place as my Twitter, at ToadsAnime. Sorry to grovel for money, but money is nice. And you can even, as a pledge reward, choose a topic for a future podcast.
1: shut ourselves instantly.